Chapter Twenty Four of Susan B. Anthony by Alma Lutz. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four Aunt Susan and Her Girls. The future of the National American Woman Suffrage Association was much on Susan's mind. This organization, which she had conceived and nursed through its struggling infancy, had grown in numbers and prestige, and she understood, as no one else could, the importance of leaving it in the right hands so that it could function successfully without her. The young women now in the work, many of them just out of college, were intelligent, efficient, and confident and yet as she compared them with the vivid consecrated women active in the early days of the movement she observed in her diary clarina nichols paulina davis lucy stone francis d gage lucretia mott and e c stanton each without peer among any of our college graduates young women of today even so she appreciated the young women of today whom she affectionately called her girls or her adopted nieces but she still held the reins tightly although they often champed at the bit recognizing however that she must choose between personal power and progress for her cause she characteristically chose progress quick to appreciate ability and zeal when she saw it, she seldom failed to make use of it. When Carrie Chapman Catt presented a detailed plan for a thorough overhauling of the mechanics of the organization, she gave her approval, remarking dryly, there never yet was a young woman who did not feel that if she had had the management of the work from the beginning, the cause would have been carried long ago. I felt just that way when I was young. On four of her adopted nieces, Rachel Foster Avery, Anna Howard Shaw, Harriet Taylor Upton, and Carrie Chapman Catt, Susan felt that the greater part of her work would fall and be worthily done yet she feared that in her enthusiasm for efficient organization they might lose the higher concepts of freedom and justice which had been the driving force behind her work not having learned the lessons of leadership when the cause was unpopular they lacked the discipline of adversity which bred in the consecrated reformer the wisdom tolerance and vision so necessary for the success of her task what they did understand far better than the highly individualistic pioneers was the value of teamwork which grew in importance as the national american association expanded far beyond the ability of one person to cope with it probably first in her affections was rachel foster avery who had been like a daughter to her since their trip to Europe together in 1883. The confidence she felt in their friendship was always a comfort. Rachel's intelligent approach to problems made her an asset at every meeting, and Susan relied much on her judgment. In Anna Howard Shaw, ten years older than Rachel, 
Susan had found the hardy campaigner and orator for whom she had longed. Anna expressed a warmth and understanding that most of the younger women lacked, and best of all she loved the cause as Susan herself loved it. Because of her close friendship with Susan's niece Lucy, she was regarded as one of the family, and whenever possible between lectures she stopped over in Rochester for a good talk with Aunt Susan. Harriet Taylor Upton, of Warren, Ohio, had enlisted in the ranks in the 1880s, when her father was a member of Congress. Because of her influence in Washington and Ohio, Harriet was invaluable, and Susan speedily brought her into the official circle of the National American Association as treasurer, even thinking of her as a possible president. Harriet's jovial, irrepressible personality readily won friends, and Susan found her a refreshing and comfortable companion, able to see a bit of humor in almost every situation. When differences of opinion at meetings threatened to get out of hand, Harriet could always be relied on to break the tension with a few witty remarks. Carrie Chapman Catt gave every indication of developing into an outstanding executive. Not another one of Susan's girls could so quickly or so intelligently size up a situation as Carrie, nor could they so effectively put into action well-thought-out plans. Not as popular a speaker as the more emotional Anna Howard Shaw, she held her audiences by her appeal to their intelligence. Tall, handsome, and well-dressed, she never failed to leave a favorable impression. Only her name irked Susan, and as Susan wrote Clara Colby, "'If cat it must be, then I insist she should keep her own father's name, Lane, and not her first husband's name, Chapman.' but the three C's intrigued Carrie, and she continued to be known as Carrie Chapman Cat. Now living in the East, because her husband's expanding business had brought him to New York, she was easily accessible, and from her beautiful new home at Bensonhurst, a suburb of Brooklyn, she carried on the rapidly growing work of the organization committee until a New York City office became imperative. In Carrie, Susan recognized qualities demanded of a leader at this stage of the campaign when suffragists must learn to be as keen as politicians and as well organized. Spring is not heralded in Washington by the arrival of the robin, commented a Washington newspaper, but by the appearance of Miss Anthony's red shawl. Susan was still the dominating figure at the annual women's suffrage conventions. Everyone looked eagerly for the tall, lithe, gray-haired woman with a red shawl on her arm or around her shoulders. Once when Susan appeared on the platform with a new white crepe shawl, the reporters immediately registered their displeasure by putting down their pencils. This did not escape her, and always on good terms with the newsmen and informal with her audiences, she called out, Boys, what is the matter? Where is the red shawl? one of them asked. 
no red shawl, no report. Enjoying this little by-play, she sent her niece Lucy back to the hotel for the red shawl, and when Lucy brought it up to the platform and put it about her shoulders, the audience burst into applause, for the red shawl, like Susan herself, had become the well-loved symbol of women's suffrage. Susan was convinced that the annual national convention should always be held in Washington, where Congress could see and feel the growing strength and influence of the movement. Her girls, on the other hand, wanted to take their conventions to different parts of the country to widen their influence. Not as certain as Susan that work for a federal amendment must come first, many of them contended that a few more states won for woman's suffrage would best help the cause at this time. The Southern women, now active, were firm believers in states' rights and supported state work. Susan's experience had taught her the impracticability of direct appeal to the voters in the states, now that foreign-born men in increasing numbers were arrayed against votes for women. In spite of her arguments and her pleas, the National American Association voted in 1894 to hold conventions in different parts of the country in alternate years. Disappointed, but trying her best graciously to follow the will of the majority, she traveled to Atlanta and to Des Moines for the conventions of 1895 and 1897. Nor did the younger women welcome the messages which Mrs. Stanton, at Susan's insistence, sent to every convention. Susan herself often wished her good friend would stick more closely to women's suffrage instead of introducing extraneous subjects such as educated suffrage, the matriarchate, or woman and the church. But nevertheless, she proudly read her papers to successive conventions. Insisting that the conventions were too academic, Mrs. Stanton urged Susan to inject more vitality into them by broadening their platform. Susan, however, had come to the conclusion that concentration on woman's suffrage was imperative in order to unite all women under one banner and build up numbers which congressmen were bound to respect. With this, her girls agreed 100%. While all of them were convinced suffragists, they were divided on other issues, and few of them were whole-hearted feminists, as were Susan and Mrs. Stanton. With the publication of the Woman's Bible in 1895, Mrs. Stanton almost upset the apple cart, stirring up heated controversy in the National American Women's Suffrage Association. The Woman's Bible was a keen and sometimes biting commentary on passages in the Bible relating to women. It questioned the traditional interpretation which for centuries has fastened the stigma of inferiority upon women, and pointed out that the female as well as the male was created in the image of God. To those who regarded every word of the Bible as inspired by God, the woman's Bible was heresy, and both the clergy and the press 
stirred up a storm of protest against it. Suffragists were condemned for compiling a new Bible and were obliged to explain again and again that the woman's Bible expressed Mrs. Stanton's personal views and not those of the movement. Susan regarded the woman's Bible as a futile, questionable digression from the straight path of woman's suffrage. To Clara Colby, who praised it in her woman's tribune, she wrote, of all her great speeches, I am always proud, but of her Bible commentaries, I am not proud, either of their spirit or letter. I could cry a heap every time I read or think, if it would undo them, or do anybody or myself, or the cause or Mrs. Stanton any good. They are so entirely unlike her former self, so flippant and superficial but she thinks I have gone over to the enemy, so counts my judgment worth nothing more than that of any narrow-souled body. But I shall love and honor her to the end. Whether her Bible please me or not, so I hope she will do for me. She was, however, wholly unprepared for the rebellion staged by her girls at the Washington Convention of 1896, when led by Rachel Foster Avery, they repudiated the woman's Bible and proposed a resolution declaring that their organization had no connection with it. This was clear proof to Susan that her girls lacked tolerance and wisdom. Listening to the debate, she was heartsick. Anna Howard Shaw and Mrs. Catt, as well as Alice Stone Blackwell, spoke for the resolution. Only a few raised their voices against it, among them her sister Mary, Clara Colby, Mrs. Blake, and a young woman new to the ranks, Charlotte Perkins Stetson. Susan was presiding, and leaving the chair to express her opinions, she firmly declared, To pass such a resolution is to set back the hands on the dial of reform. We have all sorts of people in the association, and a Christian has no more right on our platform than an atheist. When this platform is too narrow for all to stand on, I shall not be on it. Who is to set up a line? Neither you nor I can tell Mrs. Stanton will come out triumphant and that this will be the great thing done in woman's cause." Lucretia Mott at first thought Mrs. Stanton had injured the cause of women's rights by insisting on the demand for women's suffrage, but she had sense enough not to pass a resolution about it. "'Are you going to cater to the whims and prejudices of people?' she asked them. "'We draw out from other people our own thought. If, when you go out to organize, you go with a broad spirit,' You will create and call out breath and toleration. You had better organize one woman on a broad platform than ten thousand on a narrow platform of intolerance and bigotry. Her voice tense with emotion, she concluded, This resolution adopted will be a vote of censure upon a woman who is without a peer in intellectual and statesmanlike ability one who has stood for half a century the acknowledged leader 
of progressive thought and demand in regard to all matters pertaining to the absolute freedom of women. When the resolution was adopted, 53 to 40, she was so disappointed in her girls, and so hurt by their defiance, that she was tempted to resign. Hurrying to New York after the convention to talk with Mrs. Stanton, she found her highly indignant and insistent that they both resign from the ungrateful organization which had repudiated the woman to whom it owed its existence. The longer Susan considered taking this step, the less she felt able to make the break. She severely reprimanded Mrs. Cat, Rachel, Harriet Upton, and Anna, telling them they were setting up an inquisition. Finally, she wrote Mrs. Stanton, No, my dear, instead of my resigning and leaving those half-fledged chickens without any mother, I think it my duty and the duty of yourself and all the liberals to be at the next convention and try to reverse this miserable narrow action. To a reporter who wanted her views on the woman's Bible, she made it plain that she had no part in writing the book, but added, I think women have just as good a right to interpret and twist the Bible to their own advantage as men have always twisted it and turned it to theirs. It was written by men, and therefore its reference to women reflects the light in which they were regarded in those days. In the same way, the history of our Revolutionary War was written, in which very little is said of the noble deeds of women, though we know how they stood by and helped the great work. It is so with history all through. For some years, Susan's girls had been urging her to write the reminiscences, spurred on by the fact that Mrs. Stanton, Mary Livermore, and Julia Ward Howe were writing theirs. There were also other good reasons for putting her to work at this task. Writing would keep her safely at home and away from the strenuous work in the field which they feared was sapping her strength. It would keep her well occupied so that they could develop the work and the conventions in their own way. Susan put off this task from month to month and from year to year, torn between her desire to leave a true record of her work and her longing to be always in the thick of the suffrage fight. Finally she began looking about for a collaborator, convinced that she herself could never write an interesting line. Ida Husted Harper, with her newspaper experience and her interest in the cause, seemed the logical choice and in the spring of 1897 she came to 17 Madison Street to work on the biography. The attic had been remodeled for workrooms, and here Susan now spent her days with Mrs. Harper, trying to reconstruct the past. She had definite ideas about how the book should be written, holding up as a model the biography of William Lloyd Garrison recently written by his children. Mrs. Harper always had high standards, and influenced by the formalities of the day, edited Susan's vivid, brusque letters, hurriedly written and punctuated with dashes, so that they conformed with her own easy but more formal style. 
To this, Susan readily consented, for she always depreciated her own writing ability. On one point, however, she was adamant, that her story be told without dwelling upon the disagreements among the old workers. The household was geared to the bog, as they call the biography. Mary, supervising as usual, watched over their meals and the housework with the aid of a young rosy-cheeked Canadian girl, Anna Dan, who had recently come to work for them, and whom they at once took to their hearts, making her one of the family. Soon another young girl, Genevieve Hawley, from Fort Scott, Kansas, was employed to help with the endless copying, sorting of letters, and pasting of scrapbooks, and with the current correspondence which piled up and diverted Susan from the book. Through 1897 and 1898, they worked at top speed. The Life and Work of Susan B. Anthony, A Story of the Evolution of the Status of Women, in two volumes, by Ida Husted Harper, was published by the Bowen Merrill Company of Indianapolis just before Christmas, 1898. Happy as a young girl out of school, Susan inscribed copies for her many friends, and eagerly watched for reviews, pleased with the favorable comments in newspapers and magazines throughout this country and Europe. By this time, the Cuban rebellion was crowding all other news out of the papers, and Susan followed it closely, for this struggle for freedom instantly won her sympathy. She hoped that Spain, under pressure from the United States, might be persuaded to give Cuba her independence. But the blowing up of the battleship Maine and the war cries of the press and of a faction in Congress led to the armed intervention in April 1898. Always opposed to war as a means of settling disputes, she wrote Rachel, to think of the mothers of this nation, sitting back in silence without even the power of a legal protest, while their sons are taken without a by your leave. Well, all through, it is barbarous, and I hope you and all our young women will rouse to work as never before, and get the women of the Republic clothed with the power of control of conditions in peace or when it shall come again, which, heaven forbid, in war. Not only did she express these sentiments in letters to her friends, but in a public meeting, where only patriotic fervor and flag-waving were welcome, she dared criticize the unsanitary army camps and the greed and graft which deprived soldiers of wholesome food. There isn't a mother in the land, she declared, who wouldn't know that a shipload of typhoid-stricken soldiers would need cots to lie on and fuel to cook with, and that a swamp was not a desirable place in which to pitch a camp. What the government needs at such a time is not alone bacteriologists and army officers— but also women who know how to take care of sick boys and have the common sense to surround them with sanitary conditions. At this her audience, at first hostile, burst into applause. 
more and more disturbed by the inefficient care of the wounded and the feeding of enlisted men she wrote rachel every day's reports and comments about the war only show the need of women at the front not as employees permitted to be there because they begged to be but thereby right as managers and dictators in all departments in which women have been trained those of feeding and caring for in health and nursing the sick the war over the problem of governing the philippines puerto rico and hawaii was of great interest to her and she at once asked for the enfranchisement of the women of these newly won island possessions she regarded it as an outrage for the most democratic nation in the world to foist upon them an exclusively masculine government a male oligarchy as she called it i really believe i shall explode she wrote clara colby if some of you young women don't wake up and raise your voice in protest i wonder if when i am under the sod or cremated and floating in the air, I shall have to stir you and others up. How can you not be all on fire? The unwillingness of her girls to relate women's suffrage to contemporary public affairs such as this repeatedly disappointed her. Yet she was well aware that the younger generation would never see the work through her eyes or exactly follow her pattern disappointed that her national american woman's suffrage association did not attract members as did the w c t u or the general federation of women's clubs she confessed to clara colby it is the disheartening part of my life that so very few women will work for the emancipation of their own half of the race watching women flock into these other organizations and contributing to all sorts of charities she was obliged to admit that very few are capable of seeing that the cause of nine-tenths of all the misfortunes which come to women and to men also lies in the subjection of women and therefore the important thing is to lay the axe at the root she also discovered that it was one thing to build up a large organization and another to keep women so busy with pressing work for the cause that they did not find time to expend their energies on the mechanics of organization. Not only did she chafe at the red tape most of them spun, but she often felt that they were too prone to linger in academic byways, listening to speeches and holding pleasant conventions. Since the California campaign of 1896, only one state, Washington, had been roused to vote on a woman's suffrage amendment, which was defeated, and only one more state, Delaware, had granted women the right to vote for members of school boards. Again and again she warned her girls that some kind of action on women's suffrage by Congress every year was important a hearing a committee report a debate or even an unfavorable vote would 
she was convinced, do more to stir up the whole nation than all the speakers and organizers that could be sent through the country. Such thoughts as these, relative to the work which was always on her mind, she dashed off to one after another of her young colleagues. "'Your letters sound like a trumpet blast,' wrote Anna Howard Shaw, grateful for her counsel. They read like St. Paul's epistles to the Romans, so strong, so clear, so full of courage. At seventy-eight, Susan realized that the time was approaching when she must make up her mind to turn over to a younger woman the presidency of the National American Association. And in the summer of 1898, she announced to her executive committee that she would retire on her 80th birthday in 1900. End of chapter 24